Hi guys, Josh here, just popping in to explain this unlocked episode appearing in your feed. The episode you're about to hear on William Friedkin's To Live and Die in LA and Michael Mann's Manhunter is one of our Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes from a few months ago, and it was one of our patron favorites, as well as a highly requested one from some of the free listeners. So to celebrate hitting 50,000 total listens, we figured we'd give the free listeners a bit of a treat this week. So without further ado, enjoy Jamie and I's discussion on two of the moodiest, most existential, and in our opinion, best stylish crime movies of the 80s, both starring one William Peterson. And if you like this bonus episode, there are about 40 more of them waiting for you in our back catalog over at patreon.com slash podcast, and we release two more every single month, as well as now monthly bonus transmissions where Jamie and I talk brand new release genre film so if you've been digging the show and you haven't made the jump to patreon yet i definitely consider doing that it helps us out a lot and we really appreciate it intruder entered through kitchen sliding door yes yeah, one killer this is what the subject's teeth look like you're not wired are you william you're gonna make yourself sick the first agents to get next to masters we can't come up with the front money you're not for real just you and me now support i'm not fighting damn it hey everyone welcome back to another episode of you guys know the show yes i'm josh i'm jamie welcome back to another episode of sleezoids this is your bonus patreon episode for the week welcome yeah uh, you guys know the drill at this point. We are back. We are talking two sleazy movies exclusively for you guys at Patreon.com. Uh, and we appreciate you guys being out there. Very, very and li- much. And, and listen, listening to these episodes, because sometimes I'm like, we do some of our best episodes uh, over <laughs> yeah. here. And I'm like, you know. <laughs> 20 people got to listen yeah, yeah. to them. Awesome. <laughs> Beauty. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys' bonus episode listeners would have heard from us. And we would have been talking Larry Cohen. Oh, yeah. Uh, R.I.P. Yeah. to one of the exploitation legends. Uh, we talked uh, 1974, It's Alive. Uh, baby, murderous demon baby. Yes. Uh, A lot of dark humor in his films, which I appreciated, too. Yes. Very, very funny premises inherently. Although we were quite both surprised, I think, by It's Alive being as uh, kind of emotional as it ended yeah, up being. Yeah, it, that ending, uh, it really gets to uh, a heavy spot, it's for pre- sure. It's pretty grim. Yeah. Uh, and then we paired it with 1976 God Told Me To, which is uh, it's, its own kind of, uh, it started out as kind of like a like a bizarre crime serial killer movie. It ends up going yeah. into like psychedelic sci-fi yeah, craziness. It's, it's all over the place. We got a, we got a Jesus. Who that, is God? <laughs> yeah. What is the meaning? Very interesting movie anyway. Uh, so if you haven't heard that episode, uh, it's for you guys, patrons, exclusively for you. So go back and check that one out. Uh, but last week... Uh, for all listeners, free listeners out there on a whatever podcast listener of choice, we talked uh, shot on video horror for the first time. Kind of a bizarre experience. I had never yeah. seen any shot on video movie at all, I think, of any kind. Yeah, so, I think this was the first for me, too. Yeah, you'll get to hear us kind of walk through our first experiences uh, with with something that looks like that. Uh, that kind of <laughs> yeah. no budget. Uh, very fun conversation with uh, special guest Steve Carlson, a, a trash fiend and regular listener as well as patron of this very hey, show. He's seen like every single trash movie there is out there. Every single one. And uh, 
Steve was actually one of the first patrons on this show specifically because mm. he believes in everyone getting out there and getting some trash in their life. Yes. Uh, and he brought on with you. him uh, Boarding House 1982, a poltergeist uh, kind of incoherent when comedy the, horror. Definitely thing. this guy's like personal project. He just wanted to hang out with like Playboy bunnies for a week. <laughs> thing of beauty in its own way <laughs> absolutely <laughs> and uh, uh we paired it with red spirit lake uh charles oh, pinion film 1993 uh that shit insanity which i won't even try to uh, uh summarize yeah. succinctly here just go watch it's like You'll, an hour and nine minutes it's yeah, just yeah insane you, you will have to go watch that movie and go listen to that episode to hear absolutely. much more about that but this week, we have two very special movies for you. We are going to be talking about a the niche genre of very heavily stylized uh, 80s crime procedurals, both films in their own ways, about uh, the slippery transition between crook, cop and crook. Yes. Uh, also, uh, not not as evil as uh, to live like a cop, <laughs> die like a die like a man. For yeah, sure. not quite, but <laughs> not quite I mean, as corrupt. Noticeably, a little bit of similarities with the first film here. Yeah, I think a little bit, definitely. Uh, just in terms of maybe the the destructiveness of it, and uh, yeah. we'll get into that though as we jump into these movies here, and uh, which are uh, first to live and die in L.A. 1985, directed by William Friedkin. This is the third time we're going to be talking about William Friedkin on the show. We already talked about... It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> the Exorcist. Uh, and we also talked about his uh, more more understeen 1980 uh, uh, crime procedural gone slightly horror slasher. Yeah. Uh, cruising with Al Pacino. Um, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised that uh, even his crime films tend to get into the horror eventually. Yeah, definitely. Um, this was my first time watching To Live and Die in L.A. It's been on my watch list forever. I think this was your first too. time watching it, too. Yeah, I've, I've heard about this one for a long time, so I was glad to finally uh, get a get a look at it. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be pairing it with uh, one of my personal just Yeah, you favorite. wanted to talk about this one for a while. I've been, I, I wanted to talk about this film since we started the show. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this Long is, time coming. Yep, and we. I think I eventually I was going to pair it with Silence of the Lambs, but, mm. and I should uh, shout this guy out now, uh, one of our patrons, Alex Netto, actually, uh, he suggested when um, I, we brought up that we might do some more Michael Mann that he said that we should do To Live and Die in L.A. alongside Manhunter, because I had never seen it, so I didn't yeah. think of that well, pairing. Well, it ended up so, being a great pairing. So he was the one who thought of that pairing, and it ended up being perfect. Perfect. I yeah, couldn't, I couldn't, unbelievably I couldn't good. believe watching To Live and Die in L.A. how much these movies speak to each other. But that being yeah. said, I guess we should get Michael Mann, Manhunter, 1986 is the second film. Yeah. One year after um, and very, very similar in terms of uh, uh, choice of subject. Um, very, very different in terms of execution of that subject. Yeah, and especially where the characters go. You know, where, where their ends, I uh, will say. <laughs> yes, well, and, and I mean in terms of just like the actual uh, filmmaking decisions made by the filmmakers. Sure, uh, yeah. I would say To Live and Die in L.A. leans a little bit more to nihilism and cruelty, whereas Absolutely. I feel like Manhunter, in typical Michael Mann fashion, and one of the reasons <laughs> I love him That is, romance. 
it has a little bit more sensitivity. It has sensitivity to it. It has intimacy uh, with its characters in a Beaches way. And sense. In a way where oh I my. feel like William Friedkin might uh, have been a little bit more grossed out by his characters and wanted to see them suffer a yeah. little bit, <laughs> yeah. which is very different because even Manhunter, which tackles the idea of a literal serial killer, he has still maintained sympathy for that killer. Yeah, so yeah there's we, some very heavy emotional scenes even with the killer. Yeah, so either way, that's what we're going to be talking today. Uh, and I think we're just going to jump right into it to live and die in LA. Let's do it. And you better use that fucking theme song. The, oh, the, yeah. da, 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 I'm going to hopefully get that right in there as it goes. So we are talking to live and die in Los Angeles, the oh, yeah. 1985 American, uh, it's described here, action thriller crime film directed by William Friedkin. I'd say that it gets a, a typical Friedkin fashion, fashion that's true, Yeah. but the tone is a little different every time. Yeah, it guy. always goes into a, a darker realm. Uh, horror seems to, to come yeah, out of some, him the, all the time. Yeah, Even like no, when we watch Cruising, like... It, there were there were moments of just genuine horror, like when we're through the or, orgy scene. There were just the way he would shoot things. You yeah. know, it's just there's the, like a dark, ominous sense to it all. Yeah, well, and and I, I feel like an even better word for horror. It's it's like supernatural. Yeah, that's way better. I, I feel yeah. like there's there's something transcendent happening beyond what's literally happening to these characters um, that that I find very interesting, and I think this gets there too. Although horror is definitely um, yeah. one aspect that he gets to, especially with the finale of this film. Yeah, I guess here. with the horror, it's just more like the the fear that he seems to be able to instill in his audience. Yeah, uh, regardless a, there, of if it is a there, a horror. There's film. there's like a, a a moody ominous nature sometimes yeah. that he gets to where you 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 feel like you're on like another planet for a second uh, and that happened a lot obviously in the in, in the film cruising as al pacino goes underground into the sort of like gay club scene trying to find a uh serial killer of gay men right. um and he finds himself sort of like sexually opened up by the experience himself yeah. and then um he's obviously horrified because the serial killer is specifically targeting the gay men and uh in those scenes it goes full slasher yeah yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, we don't even have to, the exorcist is literal horror. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> doesn't, uh, doesn't stray far from there. No. But, uh, um, one thing I also noticed with Friedkin is, um, and maybe it was more so with, I guess, comparing it to the exorcist, but there, he likes to, uh, film in this movie in particular, that that bridge seems to really be something for him. That architect of the LA bridge, mm -hmm. like it's, it's in a bunch of scenes and it's always kind of luring in the background. And I'm mm -hmm. not sure what he was trying to say with that. Maybe he was trying to say like, that's like, you could see the escape from this, this city, you know, everywhere you go, but no one can seem to get there. Uh, I yeah, don't know well, if that, well, but, in, but in, in contrast, it seemed to like 
the way he would shoot the stairs in The Exorcist. Yeah. It just seems to have something with architecture a little bit where yeah. he finds ways to like just he, make a building look ominous and, like, and powerful. Bring out feelings in yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know specifically that his, I believe I read that his methodology for filming L.A. and this is that he specifically wanted to avoid um, um, popular landmarks. Okay. Um, and he wanted to kind of film in the kind of um, grungier, more industrial pockets of LA. Definitely. Um, yeah. And it also helps that because he's always like he's always shooting under a bridge, like train tracks, graffiti. You know, it's very yeah. dirty area. Or you see yeah. like the factories in the background, right. or you yeah. see like rundown neighborhoods, or you see yeah. yeah. So he, he kind of chose that side of. He's LA. not showing the the luxurious club life of LA. That's for sure. No, and and, <laughs> and even when we get into like really nice homes owned by you know criminals or whatever it's, <laughs> yeah. it, it's this very kind of like uh uneasy modernist architecture and stuff like yeah, that Yeah, it feels like no one really lives there like it doesn't feel like feel, a, well, a, a mod- home, modernist you know? architecture has always felt to me like um kind of like sci-fi-ish almost yeah. like, like it, feel, it still feels a little like inhuman and it's funny yes. because yep. he also uses that in, in manhunter as well uh for to similar for ends yeah um so we'll get into that as well but yeah his his choice to film la here as this very like dirty grungy area mm-hmm. where like kind of like a bunch of psychopaths kind of like roam free destroying things uh yeah is is pretty nuts and it also helps that he got a um uh indie cinematographer robbie muller who shot uh, Wim Wenders' Paris, Texas. He also shot films for um, Lars von Trier. He shot Dancer in the Dark and Breaking the Waves. He shot films for Jim Jarmusch. He shot Dead Man. Um, He shot Repo Man from the 80s. Um, Like, Robbie Muller is one of the most accomplished American cinematographers uh, in the independent scene that I can can think of. He actually Mm. just passed away, I think, last year. Oh, damn. R.I.P. This is one of the few films... That when I first started watching it, like one of my first comments watching it was like, this is like beautiful. Like the cinematography yes, is gorgeous. is is beautiful. And and usually I have to wrestle with myself with that because I'm someone who really likes like gorgeous cinematography and that kind of like, you know, this kind of very overt, stylish uh, aesthetics to it. Yeah. But I always like go in the sense of like, what does it mean? Is there anything yes, more to it that, than just it looks yes, good? Yes, that's yeah, that's yeah. always my primary concern. If yeah. I if I'm noticing the style so much, usually I'm like, okay, but is there a purpose to this? Right? Is and it is it dangling something in front of me while it's just bullshit? Yeah. In the back? So I, yeah. I always have that in the back of my head every time yeah. you know something is so noticeably beautiful like this. But I I also think that it kind of does because I find this film very um, gruesome and disgusting, mm-hmm. uh, but also very like intoxicating. And, and, and you kind of get the drive of William Pearson's main character as he's a thrill seeker um, and he seems kind of invested in this as almost like a uh, like a death rider type thing. Yeah. Like he's like, he's, 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 he's beyond, he's transcended human life somehow. Uh, and, and I feel like you get that feeling from just how beautiful some of this stuff ends up looking. I think uh, we, we we talked about um, when we did Stealth, we mentioned Philippe Furtado had wrote about Stealth, uh, and I saw that he wrote about this film as well, and he, he brought up the idea that it almost seems like everything in this movie is, like, sexualized. Like, it's, oh, like, yeah. it's so, like just so gorgeous even like watching someone get their head brutally shotgunned off is <laughs> yeah, like meticulously crafted yeah, such a gorgeous yeah. lighting and yeah yeah absolutely. yeah and 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 he he thought that it kind of brought up an idea of um 
of kind of like aesthetic fakeness, mm. uh, which is goes in line with like the counterfeiting and this idea of yeah. people putting on these sort of like surface level facades in yeah. a way. Like even um, the cops, you know, I yeah. mean, like they, they're, they're at, at a certain point, I think he has a line where he just says, I don't care. I, I do what I want. Yeah. And it's just like basically saying whatever it takes to get this case solved, I'm going to do it regardless of the, of the uh, consequences, consequences, destructiveness. Yeah. Any, anything. And, and uh, ultimately kind of like how bad he, he uh, like actually does the job. Yeah, uh, it was yeah, funny. I, I was watching it with my buddy and, and he was like, this guy's like that loose cannon, but gets results guy, but he doesn't get the results. He's <laughs> yeah, just exactly. the loose cannon. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, which speaking of which, maybe we should jump, uh, just give like a quick plot overview for anyone who sure. hasn't seen it, but this is the uh, risk taker run in. Yeah shoot the guy kind of guy and it seems like that is in all aspects of his life because yes. he even has the the bridge jumping he seems to just the bungee jump constantly thing that he does, yeah. be looking for this kind of thrill, thrill. Yeah, rather exactly. than just getting the job done correctly <laughs> yes and he takes his job very very um uh he, he takes it in a in a very because i was gonna say seriously but almost he 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 still sacrifices, he makes kind of sometimes stupid decisions out of yeah. for like macho cop reasons. He seems like a performative cop. Yes. Like, like he'll, he'll run in wearing like really tight jeans and really shiny boots and a leather yeah. jacket with his sunglasses and be like, <laughs> I'm here to save the day. Yeah. One uh, of my favorite parts was just watching his attire in the first couple scenes and he has tight jeans a football jersey, but then a scarf. <laughs> and I'm like, you just added the scarf for like some pretentious little douche personality thing. Oh, it was such a nice little, uh, little add on. Whoever did the costume design for that was just so funny. They knew exactly what they were trying to get across. Yeah. And, um, uh, William Peterson obviously went on to be of CSI fame. Um, he played, yeah. uh, the main, the main guy on that show, which was a reference what? to actually Manhunter, which we're going to talk about next. Uh, okay. And um, I never really watched him on CSI, but I got to say that he's excellent. He's so good in these two films and yeah. was, was, did he just never break free or is it just, I haven't seen the films that he's known for besides these or uh, no, these are his two most, these are the big, these the are big his two Peterson most popular films. films that he was in. And the third biggest film he was in was Michael Mann's debut film thief. And oh, he right, had, of course. And, and he That's had, a great movie. and he had a small role. He had just a small character role on the sidelines. That was actually, okay. that was a thief was actually his very first movie. Oh, wow. And then To Live and Die in L.A. was his first uh, leading role. Okay, because this is like, he does such a good job of giving me this complicated, deep character, but it's still subtle. Like, his performance isn't terribly eccentric, but I just feel like there's so much character bouncing off him all no, the time. Well, and, and I also find him, he's great. Um, like, he, he's not like a traditional looking tough guy in a right. way either. That's, yeah, um, very true. And, and it's very... It was very funny to me watching him put on like the most cartoonishly macho cop performance I've seen <laughs> yeah. in like forever. Yeah. Like he's he's always gotta have the gun out, he's always gotta run in, he's always gotta have the sunglasses, he's gotta be having like explicit sex with the lady informants. Yeah. He's gotta be like and, and he's gotta have like those like really brutal one liners too. Like <laughs> yeah. the I, I I lost it at that line where she was just like, Are you gonna pay me for the information I gave you? And he was like, No arrest, no payment or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then and then she goes, like, come on, like I like give me a, something and he was like if you want bread fuck a baker yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a good one and, and it's just so funny because coming out of William Peterson's mouth which I mean maybe it's also my fault because 
I'm so Manhunter is a film I've seen like literally like five or six times. Yeah. And I had seen CSI uh, generally, like, you know, I hadn't watched it like fully, but I had right. seen episodes of Enough it. Enough with him. In and, it, yeah. and he's like the smart older guy on CSI. Right. And in Manhunter, he's like kind of like the softer, more sensitive guy who gets a little obsessed and over his head. But yeah. ultimately, he's a very, um, you know, um, emotionally aware character. Yeah. And he's really and, trying to do and that. Then, and then in here, it's like he might as well be playing like an Arnold Schwarzenegger character. Absolutely. Like it, it felt like yeah. last action hero y to me. Even um, the bit where his older partner, who gets brutally murdered in the film, uh, he, three days away from retirement. Yeah, every, <laughs> it all hits the, the great points, the great marks of um, any action flick. It was also very cool to see for the second time on this show, we talked about a young Willem Dafoe. Yeah, and he he's great. Less him playing the villain just suits so well. I mean, he's got that that kind of goblin-y face, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Willem Dafoe, you know, he's he's a he's a good looking dude, but he has that uh, you, he, that you, big you, smile and and it's he's so many dimples and like yeah, it's just very villainous, very villainous. Well, and it's funny this came out one year after Streets of Fire. Which is where right. we talked about him too. So, right. so if Streets of Fire, To Live and Die in LA, and Manhunter all came out within a year of each other, which is like just crazy to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, William or uh, Willem Dafoe is a uh, expert uh, money counterfeiter. Which I love that scene, by he, the way. He has a printing press where he designs uh, very um, uh, intricately and minutely uh, counterfeit American money and introduces it into the system and sells it to people. Yeah. Uh, and yes, there's an amazing sequence where um, both of these films actually kind of merges very hyper-stylized look and feel mm-hmm. with what ultimately was very, very researched procedural writing right um it it, it turns out that both the uh the the main writer of of both the novel and uh co-writer of the screenplay here was actually a secret service agent oh okay Um, so he wanted stuff isn't just coming out of his ass so some (laughs) of it uh you know it's probably very heightened and exaggerated for dramatic effect but he based it on very real things that could happen in the day-to-day experiences of a secret service agent like that was one of my favorite sequences was friedkin's just attention to detail on making the counterfeit bills well yeah and, and that Every apparently he, is so he, well he consulted with imprisoned counterfeiters cool uh, and he had Very a cool. real counterfeiter if in the scene where it, you couldn't see Willem Dafoe's face yeah. it was the actual counterfeiter doing the work do, hands who were doing the work yeah wow. like doing the putting the uh, like paste and coloring into the press and stuff like that just to have that natural feel that's very cool yeah well and and it, it, it's also um, sort of uh, hammered home too by the uh, amazing synth prog rock soundtrack by uh, <laughs> Wang Wang Chung, which oh, is yeah. a British new wave band from the 1980s, uh, which uh, as a musician, maybe you can tell us a little bit specific details about things, instruments and things that they're using in there, well, but it sounds I mean, amazing. This, the 80s is known for it. I mean, like it's these the synth. deep synths, yeah, yeah, these synths, man, like th- this is what really drives any 80s soundtrack, it seems. Everything even from like, you, you go from action to horror to fantasy. It's it's really just different synths sounds uh, g- coming together. And what they'll do is often is they'll have a lot of uh, that kind of subtle bass in there. That's mm-hmm. just like you, there's a lot of that stuff where you, you hear like little like like boom, boom, boom. Like that kind of stuff, like it's, yeah. you know, and, and it's usually used for like a uh, you know more mysterious scene. Someone's discovering something, something like that. But this movie has so much of that. This and Manhunter has a lot of it too, because of Michael Mann. Michael Mann seems to be a huge fan of this kind of score. We have yeah. we see it a lot in Heat as well. Yeah, 
Uh, except he adds the electric guitar, which oh, yeah. is the wailing. So good yeah, when you yeah, add yeah. synth and electric. Yeah, guitar. I mean, and we'll talk about the difference between the sound too, because um, uh, between Manhunter and this, because I actually yeah, because Manhunter takes more of like that '80s, like uh, he has a lot of like pop rock and stuff in it, as opposed to this one, which more relies on like the score itself. Like, there's definitely pop rock in it, but yeah. I found that Manhunter, Michael Mann, just goes hard with that 80s sound you know well yeah well and he he does full out needle drops of yeah. like songs that weren't composed for the movie even right which we'll um, get to because one of them is so good yeah it's unbelievable yeah well and 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 yeah this here is definitely more of an, an actually composed score across yeah. the board yeah um and what I was kind of fascinated by was that it, it kind of contributes to the overall vibe. Because from what I understand, he wrote the screenplay. He gave the screenplay to the band, Wang Chung. Mm-hmm. And then they had the score ready before they started filming the movie. So he kind of crafted the vibe around the score. That's very um, cool. And, and it, it also kind of leads to why like certain stylized choices were there. Because, I mean, if you just hear these songs, you're automatically going to have something well, and, you know, directed well, and, 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 and it's funny because I hear them and I think like warm colors and I think yes. stuff like, and then obviously in here you get a lot of like deep oranges of, yeah. of LA um, of sun either it's like it's either constantly sunrise or sunset there's no like yeah. there's no uh, it seems like every action here takes place uh, I guess it took place overnight <laughs> right yeah. uh, is is kind of like what it, what it seems uh, and yeah so you get a lot of like really warm colors and a lot of um, and what's interesting that too is that because of like you constantly have these scenes with these warm colors and these oranges you don't your brain doesn't like you you mostly think it's like crime it's like night yeah. gritty you know but th- there's just terrible corruption and violence happening in like two o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> under a <laughs> freeway bridge it's just oh man it, it gives you just a whole different feeling about the situation yeah well and and i find that it's so much color and so much like <laughs> yeah. like rick really overpowering synth music that oh, it's, yeah. it's like sensory overlord it really is uh, overload of yeah. of just colors and then eventually as we get into it like you know scuzzy ground level la uh, location work and then eventually really really brutal violence um, as this this gets underway because largely the film just follows uh, William Peterson's Peterson's Richie as uh, his partner being in the wrong place at the wrong time trying to take down uh, Willem Dafoe's counterfeiter gets shotgunned in the head and yeah. thrown into a dumpster and William Peterson basically vows uh, in, a, in a fit of passion for his his partner who uh, even warned him that, like, dude, you get too involved. Like, you're going to get us killed uh, doing this. Uh, He just decides to get a new partner and almost get his new partner killed, trying to avenge his old partner who got killed. (laughs) And along the way, corrupts him as well. Yes. So it's it's just like... It, it, he turns this into a never-ending cycle. Yeah, th- that's that's a really important element of this film mm-hmm. is that William Peterson is a very macho performative cop, um, and he's very um, ultimately destructive and violent and breaks the rules, um, and he sees it at his, as his way of 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 beating them. Of of you know, uh, the, I mean, both films kind of address the idea mm-hmm. of becoming in your own way, criminal to stop a criminal. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, and whereas this takes on more This of, one seems more literally. Th- this whereas Manhunter's like psychologically. psychologically yes, yeah. that would that would determine the the real difference here. And then it also determines William Friedkin's style, which is obviously very... Uh, d- 
takes on a uh, supernaturally disgusting quality to it yeah. um, as, you know, we, we get deeper and deeper into um, the, the criminal underbelly of, uh, of scuzzy L.A. Again, he shoots mostly in like small rundown nuggets, lots of freeways, strip clubs, yeah. while the Wang Chung scores ringing in the background going, going at you. Um, and, uh, as all William Friedkin movies, uh, uh, or at least crime movies seem to have to, he's got one of the best car chases of all time. Yes. <laughs> it's unbelievably good. Um, cause most people, I mean, William Friedkin got brought onto the scene doing the French connection and the French yeah. connection, um, was known for being the best car chase sequence, uh, yeah, of all time. Definitely at the time. one of my favorites. For sure, um, and it's got one of my. It's got my favorite shot that uh, that bridge with the the helicopter and the um, and the train, the train, and the or the train it. and the yeah, yeah, yeah it's that side shot. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, uh, and it, it would inspire chase scenes for forever. Basically, <laughs> yeah. uh, it would also inspire directors to never do a chase scene. Brian De Palma said well, after he was like, "Why did anyone do one after the French, after the French Connection?" <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and then I watched this and I was like, "Well, maybe William Friedkin should be the only one allowed <laughs> yeah, to do that." He's them. like, "Let me let me give another take." on this um because this is cool because he what he does with this one is he makes it very like claustrophobic right like he makes yeah. the well, even French connection is kind of like that it's, it's interesting true. that the vocabulary is similar well just because the claustrophobia kind of comes from these interior shots from inside the car where right. you get like an over-the-shoulder shot right. where you can see the driver and but you can see through case, his windshield even like you're in this uh semi-truck uh, yeah. station. So it, it, instead of having a road, it's just he's just diving in between semi trucks, and I think that's what causes me to feel and it's like locking even in tighter. on them and stuff Yeah, like even that, tighter. Yeah. And then with the POV shots, which we've seen quite a few of those with with car chases now, but because they're going through like uh, parking garages and little yeah. tight things with graffiti on it, just adds a, an extra sense of claustrophobia and also style because it's L.A. and it's got all the the, the graffiti. Yeah, and well, and, like well and from what I understand, he shot this movie very quickly because he wanted mm. to shoot it in all locations when he got the locations. Oh, so okay. he did a lot of like first take kind of shooting on this film. Really? Uh, and it was well, and apparently, and also rehearse taking, he would tell the actors they were rehearsing and he would just roll the cameras anyway. And oh, okay. hopefully he got stuff. I've done that before. But basically, with, uh, basically singers. he was trying to cut down time. Yeah. Um, uh, because they wanted to use these very real locations they knew they wouldn't get for very long periods of time. Okay. Uh, so when they're driving through these locations, these are real people driving through these real locations and it's like very, and you can feel that, especially yeah. when we get to the freeway part of it that. where he drives in reverse traffic, weaving <laughs> yeah. through reverse traffic on one of LA's biggest, biggest freeways. That's um, nuts. And then obviously he goes into the LA river underpass there as well. Right. Um, and I just, again, this is an absolutely beautiful, like the, the orange sky in the background when they're driving through the LA river underpass and there's like water hitting the windshield mm-hmm. and like, there's these very beautiful wide shots and stuff like that. Like it's just, I think this was also the scene, uh, cause after, in order to escape, he makes a big, uh, traffic jam, right? Yes. In order to escape. And what's funny is that the moment after that happens, they have the, uh, the little radio, radio station yeah. go, by the way, no one was killed. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to like kind of clarify that, yeah, he is corrupt. 
He did some stupid shit, but he didn't kill any innocents. So yeah. just just so you know, I am, I am, he hasn't I, gone that far yet. I, am, I almost <laughs> wish he did kill some people. I know, a just bit. To, just to make it a little more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because but I just found that funny that they're like throw that in there. Yeah. Well, because it's, it's funny because maybe we should get to this part. The reason this car chase is happening in the first place is that he's so uh, obsessed with catching this counterfeiter because this counterfeiter killed uh, his, his his partner. And the scenes with Willem Dafoe, right. by the way, as the counterfeiter are like fucking creepy. Oh yeah. Um, um, where Willem Dafoe is he takes like, a lot of pleasure in what he's doing rather than just he, doing well, it for business and it he, seems and he, like and he's, he's got that smile yeah. and in his spare yeah. time he does something I find just really distressing which is just he paints and he paints really beautiful pictures and then he just burns, burns them, them and watches yeah. them burn and it's like I guess that's how he feels watching right. something beautiful be lit on fire I guess yeah is his idea which is it fits with the movie definitely <laughs> <laughs> this is a very beautiful movie that lights itself on fire eventually um, what's interesting too is that he lights something on fire that's like because his whole life is based on the like the counterfeit right yeah but the one original thing that he makes <laughs> he sets on fire and just destroys so yeah like, that's, that's interesting the, too. There, there's something interesting there about yeah. the idea of um you know of, of again this this sort of like over overruling fakeness yeah. um, w- which also the police institution gets into when they're trying to th- I love how the uh, his 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 uppers are always being like don't you do that but they're making <laughs> it like the only way he could possibly catch this guy like there's yeah. so many roadblocks for him to actually they give him nothing basically. Yeah, yeah yeah and and so they know that he's going to go and do something stupid and they just let him do it and then they're like well we could cover this up a little bit for you and maybe work something out I don't know we'll say you were deep undercover or something and that's yeah. why you were acting like a literal criminal uh, <laughs> uh, even though he just because that's when I lost it because here's the thing the, the the funniest thing about this movie is that uh for for all of his like I'm gonna bend the rules like Dirty Harry to get shit done yeah he doesn't get shit done no he he, he fucks up every single thing that he tries to do in this and then yep. the, and the one time he finally does something right it's because it's a crime he's like because I'm gonna do the heist he was just like <laughs> they were just like yeah we won't give you thirty grand because earlier in this movie remember you you happened you to you literally got beat up by a dude you arrested yeah and and and, and he, uncuffed yeah yeah and, 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 and he told you a sob Dominus. story about going to see his daughter in the hospital like who would fall for that yeah like a and then li- and even then it's just like like if you're going to bring him there you know keep the cuffs on him. And, and like, like there, there are still some things he could have done while going along with the guy's story too, that I'm just like, dude, you're not doing by the way, that, that, that counterfeiter crook played by John Turturro before John mm. Turturro got big. There's a lot of performances in here by people. Before. Oh, he wasn't big yet. That's no, awesome. John Turturro wasn't. He would later, uh, with the Coen brothers and stuff like that and Barton Fink and whatnot. Right, right. Uh, so in the nineties, uh, oh, William Peterson awesome. would obviously get bigger and then Willem Dafoe would obviously get bigger too. And it's funny. Yeah. Uh, William Friedkin. You see their star at, power at the time, too. this movie was criticized for not having like um, any like really big actors in it. Like it didn't oh, have really? anyone. And of, now it's just full of. Well, yeah, like it, it didn't really have anyone incredible. of note because he had to he had to find cheap talent because he didn't have a whole lot of money. Right. He was spending his money on the locations and the cinematography and like and like the actual film itself. So yeah. um, he had to hire people who weren't very experienced actors. And it's just so funny how many of them went on to have long careers throughout the 90s, even yeah. now. Tons Willem Dafoe is awesome. still big. He, Willem Dafoe's in. He's huge. Yeah, he was just in Aquaman. Yeah. <laughs> getting that paycheck yeah man <laughs> defoe and yeah around the time that he he fucks up uh 
the uh, pulling the counterfeiter out of prison, who, by the way, is uh, attempting to be murdered because he already got fucked up anyway. Like Willem Dafoe is trying to kill him in prison. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so he loses him. And then he's like, okay, well, that lead doesn't work anymore. So how about I try to pose as a buyer and get a deal with Willem Dafoe going where he's going to make some counterfeit money for me and then we'll get him then. And I will pay him. uh, He needs 30 grand up front. So just give me like, lend me 30 grand. Yeah. And they were just like, absolutely fucking not, dude. What have you done correctly? And then we'll give you the 30 grand. Yeah, and, and, and it's funny, his new young partner is kind of like, yeah, dude, like, they're kind of right. Like, why don't we just, like, do the work? Uh, yeah. like, <laughs> it's like, why don't we just do it by the book this yeah, time, yeah. you know? <laughs> Sounds crazy, I know, yeah, but, like, yeah. let's and, give it a shot. And William Peterson's like, I hear you. <laughs> it's like, I... I think we should do the heist. Yeah, though. counterpoint. <laughs> let's literally just do a heist yeah, uh, and, and, and steal the po- and steal the money, and then give that to the counterfeiter. And yes. he's like, "Okay, so your answer is to just literally become criminals." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes, uh, but it's and, to stop crime. Remember. Yes, and they end up getting. So okay. They end up getting the guy brutally killed. Uh, who they take the money from? The like Chinese uh, yeah. guy who was smuggling the money in. Uh, and then that's what triggers the car chase is all of the people looking for their money and they're getting, and eventually they're getting chased by like police at one point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's just everybody, uh, <laughs> like criminals are after them. Cops are after them. It's what happens when you, you can't ride one line. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and again, we already mentioned how awesome that car chase is, but I want to talk about one brief bit in that car chase that kind of circles back to how Friedkin kind of gets into, you know, he he takes something that's like a researched procedural element, like, say, um, you know, two guys fucking up a heist and Mm -hmm. then, you know, doing a car chase kind of deal. Yeah, Um, I mean, even that scene, too, the the scene where they're they're trying to get the, the money out of the briefcase and all that, it's it's one it's some of the worst cop work I've ever heard, seen. He just he's like, give me the briefcase, and then he just starts smashing it. it over and over again until it's finally smashed, like breaking open. It's just some well, of the I, worst. I, I also love that his sunglasses fly off after like a few swings, and yeah. he like steps on them. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, like you can tell that the guy has just gotten to the point <laughs> he's where he's problems. trying anything at this point, but he's still trying to to have this facade of he knows what he's doing. He has it all under control. Don't worry about it. We'll get the job done. But he's way over his head, you know, and it's uh, it gets more apparent as the scenes. Yeah, he's he, he's, uh, he's a very continue. unhinged lawman. Yes. Uh, and. Uh, what's just interesting is that the writing here is like very literal. Like all of this is just, it's, yeah. it's very um, grounded in, you know, police work and, 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 and uh, uh, genuine uh, criminal counterfeiting and all of this. And yeah. I do think it's funny that it's all over counterfeiting. Like, cause you yeah. think about it and it feels like not like that. Da- like it's bad, yeah. but it doesn't feel like that dangerous of a crime. People left and right. For yeah, this, there's and it's just so like, much murder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> over it, and I and and like even when they're chasing down a guy who's like got like credit, like he's hustling credit cards or whatever, and and he's like, I'll fucking kill you, yeah. I'll fucking kill you, and dude. they're and still like, super dude. violent with yeah. them because like once they grab them, the guys, I think the guy even says something like, I'm good, man, don't do anything, don't do anything, and he just punches him in the stomach <laughs> like for no reason well, at and, all. And, and there, there's there's one part that's really funny where they get close enough where during the chase they can talk to each other mm-hmm. and one guy's like why are you running dude and he's yeah. just like you're chasing me i didn't do anything you just started chasing me it was impulsive yeah so one of those guys by the way just as a little side note is um i 
I think his name is uh, Gary Scott. He's he's the dude that plays uh, the dad in Talladega Nights. Oh God, I didn't I yeah, didn't even notice I, that. I didn't notice until I looked it up, but I just looked up the credits. I'm like, oh. Gary Scott sounds familiar, and it ends up he's just that one of the the dudes that gets a. Uh, um, he was one of the muggers or the guy running from the cops and oh, he man. has such a small part and it That's was just awesome. interesting. It was very cool. That's awesome. Uh, but the part I was going to mention is the part during the car chase where they go under the, uh, passageway. This is when they're doing the LA river un- under passage area, like that concrete, uh, thing with like a little right. bit of water in it and stuff like that. Uh, and there's one point where they go under the bridge. This is where they think they've escaped the initial chase, right? Well, uh, this is right after the guys have revealed themselves to be behind them. Cause they did think they escape and you can right. see William Peterson who gets like a flashback of his bungee jumping. Like he's like, he's in it. He's like, this yeah. is why I fucking do this shit. <laughs> yeah. This fucking <laughs> this thrill. High I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fucking, it's like point break. It's like a, it tra- really like is, an adrenaline yeah. junkie. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but then a, a bullet comes flying through the back of the windshield and his partner in the back is freaking out. Apparently William Peterson, by the way, really driving the car. Yeah. Uh, oh, w- wait, he really, he like, he actually was. No yeah. Apparently. Work? Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Well, I don't know about the stuff. Um, yeah, I'm sure uh, some of it was, uh, yeah, stuntmen, I'm, but. I'm definitely, but a, a lot of uh, the driving apparently was done by Peterson when, um, uh, during the interior car shot stuff. That they were oh, doing, so like it, all his reaction shots are like, so, and so apparently genuine. the actor in the back seats reaction shots were apparently pretty genuine. He was just fucking terrified. Was, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, that's great. I also love the, uh, I thought it was going to be foreshadowing. It didn't really end up being that for his character anyway. You're, t- you're talking but, about the partner? Yeah, yeah. When he, he looks through the bullet hole. Yes, this is exactly. Love that th- shot. This is the bit that I'm talking about because when they go underneath the passage, it almost goes like pitch black because yeah. it's like they almost go into like this void and then yep. the, the orange headlights hit the rear view mirror and that's it. It's like a spotlight and it's a spotlight on William Peterson's eyes, mm-hmm. uh, glowing orange in like this black void. And then it's a shot of the partner in the back where like that orange ray of light is shining through the bullet hole. Yeah. And that's when he's like looking through it and stuff like that. It's incredible. Um, it's and like, and like shot. this is, this is what we mean when we say that Friedkin gets into the more, he, he gets so stylish yeah. to the point where you feel <laughs> it's like, like spiritual. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, cause you, you feel like you're transcendent, like you do, feel like you're watching something that just all of a sudden isn't grounded in real police work anymore like it's like these guys are all of a sudden flying like a sci-fi ship of some sort like it's just something something like so beautiful to the point of transcendence has has hit us here and it happens at that moment where william peterson is feeling that yeah. So it works with the character too there who's who's feeling like he's, you know, uh he, he I'll never die yeah, kind of deal yeah. like he's so jacked up he just on the experience. Keeps getting away with all this shit. Yeah. Uh which is really important as we pivot here into <laughs> the climax of the film. Um <laughs> where uh I mean I guess we should just jump out and and, and say it here. It leads to some bad places for him. <laughs> yeah, well I mean we 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 should mention here. Eventually that high runs out. <laughs> Well, I, 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 I got to say here, uh, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Alex Engwist, wrote uh, about this film on Letterboxd, and all he had to do was say that uh, the thing about he loves about Friedkin car chases mm. um, is is that uh, he likes to have his characters uh, who are already careening wildly toward death. Uh, uh, cars just kind of let them do that even faster. And and, and, and that's his idea that they're already like traveling on the rails towards death. Uh, and that's exactly where this film leads. Uh, William Peterson's Richie getting shotgunned in the face. Yeah. Right in the face. Yep. And at his moment of peak cockiness. 
Yeah, that too. Because he he finally gets him right. He's he's done it. He's done all of this shit. He's, he's done. like I fucking got he's you, like, dude. It was worth it. All the corrupt shit I did, totally worth it. I got you, motherfucker. Nope. Shotgunned in the face. And and the thing is, the way that he films it, there's no room for for breathing. He just dies. Like it, it's just it's, over. It's just this is the character. He's yeah. dead. And, like, and, it, and it's like it's really cool. sticky, very thick cold blood too. Yes, and and there's yeah. a hole in his fucking skull. Yeah. Uh, when it Big when it happens, yeah, like it, it reminded me almost like Abel Ferrer, like driller killer, yeah, uh, type thing. Like, and it, that's like full out like yeah. exploitation. It's just relentless to his character, and and I mean, it, you. What's interesting is that I when I was while I was watching the movie, I didn't really see that coming, yeah. but as soon as it happened, I was like. That was inevitable. Yeah. You know, it's like it, the answer was just there. It was kind of, I mean, that had to happen to him. Of course it was going to happen to him. This yeah. guy's off the rails. Well, 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 yeah, it, it, it almost felt like he was he was testing the boundaries of the movie, the character. Yeah, because, yeah. Because he was like, I'm the, the lead character. I'm the protagonist. Yeah, I like, can do this. I can do anything. Right. Like, I'm the, I'm the guy the movie's about, you yeah. know? And then it's almost like, like William thought. Friedkin wanted to hammer home that, <laughs> nope. he, like, that, that you are so willing to identify with a protagonist that you are willing to watch them go that far. Yeah. And when really going that far would get them killed, which is exactly what it what, what it, it did. does. Um, right. Yeah. And and it's funny because he it's it happens in a moment where they use the 30 grand that they stole to uh, get uh, the, the deal going with Willem Dafoe's character, who, meanwhile, on the side of all of this is also killing a lot of people like a dude who he shoots in the dick and his dick explodes. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking nuts. Uh, and I was like ouch uh thank god he put that guy out of his misery uh eventually yeah. uh <laughs> it's just like and, and i think that was a little bit of a poetic justice for him when he walks in on the guy trying to get, get out his, his girlfriend, girlfriend. yeah, yeah the, the girlfriend so he's like you know what i'm shooting you in the dick the, the girlfriend <laughs> characters in the periphery are actually kind of interesting too mm-hmm. um yeah. just just because they seem to be kind of like manipulating the system a little bit too yeah they and almost they, even seem to be i don't know if they're i would go as far as to say they're manipulating like willem dafoe but at the end they're the ones who get everything. Well, yeah. The, so it almost seems like they've been playing this long game. You well, know? It, it's definitely part of it that they're kind of like they're they're going along and they're kind of like coaxing the men into getting yeah. into like pissing contests. Exactly. And then yeah. they're killing each other and, and then, then they're the walking end, they away. And then they get in the sports car and they're just like, all right, peace out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. So so it's kind of a great moment where Willem Dafoe's girlfriend drives away. Yeah. Um, and uh, same same of I mean sort of uh, to a. Uh, a more heartbreaking uh, ending for the uh, informant uh, slash girlfriend of, of William Peterson, who yeah. ends up just getting, I mean, ju- just getting him replaced. Yeah, essentially the cycle just is going to continue for her, and that's it. Yeah, because because uh, William Peterson getting brutally murdered in front of his new partner, who he has basically terrified and passed on his own sort of destructive qualities. Yeah, because then at that, he him. has to verse uh, Defoe by himself too. Because at yes, that point, which by the way, when the score changes here, oh yeah, oh my. God, it's unbelievable, it's and also the mix of him walking through this like fire warehouse, so it almost evokes like a sense of hell, like yeah. they're fighting in hell. No, for real, because w- right. because when when he uh, you know he, he basically feels the same way that William Peterson felt at the beginning of the film when his partner dies, except right. he actually watched his partner die. Yeah, brutal. Um, so then he becomes the William Peterson character, and he's like, I got to assume the the macho do it yourself cop role. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he, wa- survive, he, he walks yeah. into the print press where Willem Dafoe is obviously already burning it down because he's been caught uh, yeah. clearly. Um, 
and yeah, the shot even outside when it's on fire, like it looks like hellfire. Yeah. And the the music gets so moody, and it's like this like uh, these like single piano notes yes, and stuff like that. So um, good. It, like it, it's like he's walking up to the gates of hell, basically, and then yeah. he and then he enters, and there's this crazy showdown where. Uh, or you even think that he dies at first because like Defoe just starts just pounding him with that that with that wood piece yeah and i'm like uh-oh this might well, like, yeah, is and, this and, how the movie's and gonna then he go goes down? to light him on fire and the guy pulls up his gun and shoots willem dafoe who then drops the thing he was gonna <laughs> light him on fire with and lights himself on fire and yeah. is getting shot while on fire yeah um, and there's like blood packs going off too, and screaming like it's just oh and, man and the score is just like soaring and the fire is just building and building in into really, the corners it's just of like the frame. an aggressive angry scene and that and that same or, and it's that same like orange and red lighting that the f- whole film has had, except it's by fire. So it's almost like this whole film has been on fire like the whole time. Right. It's almost like L.A. is on fire. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, uh, which to live and die in L.A., you know, so like that kind of thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like like again, the the beautifully like textured cinematography there specifically is is amazing. But also, again, those industrial locations, especially those printing presses and stuff like that mixed with the kind of like neon colors of L.A. itself. Uh, all of that comes to a close in that finale, which is just so nihilistic and cynical mm-hmm. about. And I also All love of that this. shot crazy. of the informant with one side her and then the other side the big bridge again. It's just oh, yeah. there in the background looming. And once again, did you did you have a, a thing on that? Was that kind of like for you, was that like it was like an overlooming structure of LA, or did you feel that as it was like an escape from LA that no one can seem to get to? Because I had uh, both a little bit. Yeah, I wasn't, no, I would I, I I could I could see both. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, I was just I, I was just curious because because he uses it like he definitely times. does it on purposely. So yeah, I was curious as to yeah. maybe well, well because the was. the ending especially she seems to be like longing for a way out right. for sure. That's yeah, that's what led me to more of an escapism kind of thing. Yeah, well, because but, I mean the freeway itself is supposed to be like a symbol of that kind of escape too, right? So right. yeah, and and the uh, lead singer, uh, lead singer, lead actor uh, William, he he talks about uh, wanting to jump off that bridge as well. Well, isn't that so, the bridge that he does jump off? Oh, well, maybe the, it is in the beginning. With the bungee? Yeah, it might be at the beginning. You're right. Yeah, so it's all it's all kind of like connected together with yeah. the, with the characters and stuff. But it, it's really painful watching that scene where he walks in and he's like assuming like yeah, you work for me. You're now. my informant now, yeah. and we're gonna have sex, and you're gonna give me stuff, and she just has visions of William Peterson's character um, and the same cycle of violence and destructiveness uh, carries on. Um, So yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a a really (laughs) cynical, really cruel, very misanthropic uh, ending. Uh, I I would say that William really lets no characters go. William Friedkin, not a big fan of people. uh, (laughs) It sounds like, yeah, uh, but yeah, I think that will wrap it up for To Live and Die in LA. We'll enter the reductive rating round here on this one. Uh, I'm going with the four, nice. but I got to say this was close. This was close yeah. for me. This was almost the five. Um, I think I think that for uh, I wasn't quite expecting what this movie was, mm-hmm. and I wasn't expecting it to be as so infectiously uh, stylized and as cynical as it is. And I think that I could very easily see this one being one that grows on me. Because the thing about between this, because we'll get into uh, something like Manhunter. Yeah. Manhunter I've seen like six times. And it, yeah. it's, a, it's a movie that just grows in my estimation every time I watch it. And I feel yeah. like this could end up being that kind of movie for me. Because, my God, uh, at, at some point or another, I was just like completely... In- 
uh, in, engrossed in this like mm-hmm. really bizarre, stylish uh, vision of LA that Friedkin came up with here, and just how goddamn uh, repulsive uh, <laughs> it, everything it is. is. Well, and, yeah. and, and 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 that contradiction between how kind of like groovy and beautiful, but at the same time you're yeah. like, ooh, that's awful <laughs> yeah yeah um so and and, and that's kind of like what and, you and, hear and, about la all the time well, and, right and, well and and you know it's and, glorious and all the these thing. nice weather celebrities and, but then in the background you always hear this corruption and all well that. and 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 what's interesting to me is that it's not a movie that's necessarily really like saying that like it's not one of those people sure. being like you know that thing that's beautiful it's actually really gross when you <laughs> take a look at it like i don't yeah. i don't think it's getting at that i think because it doesn't ever try to show you that this is like not a gross place in fact he oh yeah, it, it, yeah. In, in fact he intentionally avoided skylines and all these amazing things to show you how beautiful it was yeah. he just beautifully films the disgusting the disgusting parts yes exactly. uh and and that to me is to actually it. a complex contradiction whereas you know you could say it's simplistic to say it you know the other way yeah uh, i i think here he gets at something complex and gets into more complicated feelings where I was like really just intoxicated by the imagery, but also completely repulsed by the actual subject matter and yeah. every single character in the movie. Yeah. I, uh, I'm also going to give it a four. It's a, it's a high four as well. Uh, I can't, it's one of those movies I can't wait to rewatch, uh, especially not taking notes. I want to just pay attention to like every frame of this film. Yeah. There's um, lots of beautiful crane shots and, and movements. And I mean, Friedkin himself is just, he's, he's a natural born like shot composer. He, yeah. So it's unbelievable what he does. Uh, once again, like he's, seems to have uh, even, an even, interest even, in architecture. Even just a simple scene of like William or uh, of Willem Dafoe leaving. I keep getting William Peterson and William yeah, Dafoe yeah. mixed up, but of Willem Dafoe uh, leaving the, the print press area, there's this great crane, single crane shot where he pulls out of like the garage and he peels yeah. out and, and then he goes around the building and, and goes off and the, the camera slowly uh, goes, goes up to track him. Yeah. And then the shot of him actually on the highway, it's a, an overhead shot where the highway is pitch black. It's all like a void, like lost highway style. Yeah. And the headlights are just shooting out like flames and like, and then it's an interior shot of He's the old. of of the there's the sunset in the background, just the one little orange layer in the yeah. blackness, and then like red slash orange like glowing eyes, yeah. and it's just like and those three shots are all like connected to each other. So just like a simple scene as someone driving away from their criminal facility takes yeah. on like just a supernatural quality, which is just you know yeah. it, it, ta- it takes a lot of skill. Like, <laughs> Willem Dafoe's character is one of the only kind of free characters. You know what I mean? Because regardless of the fact that he's a criminal, he's doing terrible things. It seems like he gets to do things, you know, by his own, uh, whatever he wants to do at that time he's doing. Whereas everyone else seems to have to, you know, answer to something else, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that scene where he peels out of his like counterfeit warehouse and then just goes onto the highway well, it, it, gave me the sense of like, he feels like a, like a free man. Oh, well, yeah. Well, and it's also funny because Willem Dafoe is just trapped by like the people he has to engage with. Right. Because everyone keeps like messing up. Like the guy he hires to do the prison assassination doesn't do it correctly. And then another yeah, guy doesn't do He's dealing do with uh, incompetent criminals. And then <laughs> other guys try to betray him and then he has to shoot them in the dick. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
but uh, uh, but yeah, I'm gonna give it a, a four. Um, man, Friedkin is just unbelievable. I've loved every single film I've seen. Well, yeah, him, and, and so. what, what's funny is we did Cruising, and I think we both gave Cruising fours. I went back later, and oh, I, 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 upped, you I, I upped Cruising to the nice, five, so nice. I could see this happening to this one as well for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, what was also cool was seeing, uh, I, I've never really seen William Peterson uh, do any acting, really, besides, like, CSI, which he's, you know, he's good. It's just it's CSI, so I don't know... Uh, how much I get from it, really? Yeah, he is an unbelievable lead actor, and uh, in this one, especially. Do you know if he has other films after this, or was these kind of his two big ones? And do you know he... what? I think these are the only two wow. ones where I've seen him as like the leading role. That's a shame because um, I think he is fantastic. But it, it's very possible he did ones that I just haven't seen. I mean, I haven't, I didn't see *To yeah. Live and Die in L.A.* and he's got a very one. different take on the leading man too, which I like. So, uh, so yeah, I'm gonna give it a four out of five. This could definitely get to the five. Cool. Well, that will wrap it up for To Live and Die in L.A. We're going to be right back, and we are going to be talking Manhunter. Have you ever seen blood on the moon like that? William, you're going to make yourself sick or get yourself killed. Multiple trails. Just you and me now, sport. One hunter. I'm gonna find him. Damn it. FBI agent Will Graham. Manhunter. All right, we are back and we are talking Manhunter, the 1986 American psychological crime horror film based on the novel Red Dragon by Thomas Harris, the first novel in his uh, Hannibal series. Have you read it? Just I have read. Oh, I cool. have read Red Dragon. It's a great book. Is it pretty uh, accurate? It's the only one that I've read, actually. There's a, there's a couple minor differences, but the majority of the plot is pretty uh, cool. spot on, and you can tell that Michael Mann found his psychological angle that he was interested in and he kind of really expanded on it the only things he really kind of uh, doesn't hammer home there's a little bit more about the serial killer's backstory in the book um, i'm sure there's no about uh, about his childhood there's no 80s you know call to 80s synth music or or a tone like that that would be in a book the tone is very specific to (laughs) michael mann himself yes um and uh uh i mean the show hannibal i know that you've seen the show too which is also a great show one of my favorite tv shows uh they would have eventually in the later seasons they hit this exact same arc and they did a little bit more with the 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 serial killer's backstory and yeah they really dive into the the psychological aspects of the killer himself yeah, and and, and 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 this one, uh, fascinatingly, it does spend about a half hour on him in, in the middle of the movie. It just stops being about uh, yeah. Will Graham for like a half hour, and you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's very important to in, include that in there um, because uh, this film, starring William Peterson once again in a oh, very, yes. very different uh, performance, stars uh, uh, him as uh, the FBI profiler Will Graham famous from the Hannibal series as a man of having superhuman empathy. Um, he is able to uh, so vividly imagine the feelings and understand the point of view of killers um, that he himself gets a little uh, uh, <laughs> a little confused and a little obsessed yeah. and a little scared of himself. Um, 
and that is kind of largely what Michael Mann was the most fascinated by when it came yeah. time to to make this film. Um, but the the general plot for anyone who hasn't read the book or hasn't seen the movie is that Will Graham is an FBI profiler who kind of gets brought in as a bit of a consultant when they need him um, to track down serial killers that are particularly tough for the FBI to uh, catch. And this one sees him going after a guy named Dollarhide, or also known as the Tooth Fairy, who is a guy who is brutally um, uh, murdering families and doing home invasions uh, in order to uh, achieve some kind of uh, familial pleasure of some yeah. sort, um, which maybe we'll get into when we get in later into yeah. the movie. And I guess also the because reveals. they find a uh, they find the teeth marks on him. Uh, or on their that's why they call the him time. the tooth fairy yes. right. unofficially which, then, they get in trouble for calling him that yeah. <laughs> on unofficial then, which memos. I like though that it leads to the true reason why he does it you know and which we'll, which we'll get to but just to have this almost it's like the, you know the tooth fairy have this almost cutesy nickname for the killer but then when you really dive into his uh, his psychological issues it's something that is is so much more evil and and terrible, you know. Like they're m- really making light of this uh, this killer with such a nickname. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and and what's interesting pairing this with To Live and Die in L.A. is that uh, William Peterson's performance could not be more the opposite of what it is in uh, To Live and Die in L.A., yeah. which was him as putting on this very macho, very destructive uh, cop character. Here he is playing um, someone. Uh, a, a character with a lot of interior uh, interiority. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, it, it's very much a movie about how he is in tune uh, with the bodily and psychic pain that kind of ripples through uh, crime. Yeah. Uh, it's a very sensitive movie in comparison to Live and Die in L.A., which is a very cynical and cruel movie uh, starring yeah. a lot of terrible people. And, this and, movie and, and, tries in fact, to this give movie, the, the lead character a little bit more hope. Uh, for sure. Yes. Well, uh, maybe not when we're in the middle, but throughout the film, I feel like it gives them a little bit more of that. uh, Yes. But also optimism while also not sacrificing the fact that all of this stuff has consequences is the the main thing. Absolutely. Is that it, it, it has a hope that people can feel things and be good yeah, <laughs> and try to be and also move on. Cause it seems like he's dealing with, you know, a past trauma and yes. that's what's well, really well, I mean, stopping him from, I mean, same with the, the book itself. When this movie starts, he literally, he already has literal scars right. from Hannibal Lecter, the character. Um, and, and he's actually, the movie opens with him being, um, uh, asked to come back because he's already yeah. kind of like retired with a, you know, uh, uh, a, a, he has a wife and a child. He's living kind of in like a beach home. He thinks he's kind of done. Um, and what's fascinating to me um, is that before we get to that scene, though, the very opening images of this is home video footage from the stalker's point of view, from Dollar Hyde's point of view as he right. breaks into the family. It's home video footage. Uh, so kind of like that quality. Not, not, Shot on video quality, like yeah. what we talked about before. Uh, yeah, I was actually—it was funny. I uh, when I was first put on the film, I'm like, "Oh, did I get a shitty quality?" Because <laughs> I didn't know, I hadn't seen the movie before, so I was like, "Oh no!" Right, but what? But it's really important because this movie does end up becoming a movie a, a little bit about voyeurism and about watching, and this has mm-hmm. a lot to do. Uh, Michael Mann's filmmaking itself has a lot to do here with, um, you know, watching 
reflecting, refracting, yeah. things like this, illusions, mm. um, uh, a, lot of, li- a lot of fantasies, people projecting things that they yeah. want. What I like, too, is how they, uh, like, when it shows the guy going up the stairs and it shows with just the With the, the stairs, light, yeah. And then when Will comes, or... Uh, it's the same yes, shot. It is Will. Uh, Will comes. Yeah, it's the same shot of him going up the but stairs. It's high, so but it's but kind it, of that start of his connection with the killer and that empathy. Yes, well, because, because he's making the exact same walk with the exact right. same lighting and going through, yeah. It's, it's, it's Except amazing. when he opens the door, unfortunately, it's not a, a girl sleeping. It's just blood everywhere. There's and arterial a spray scene. all over yeah. the walls, all over the bed, um, things like that. Uh, and noticeably too here, the score, while also very sort of like synth and rock heavy, mm-hmm. um, a yeah. lot more like humming and a lot more yeah. like very slow uh, wailing. And it, one, it, it's a lot spacier. Yeah, there's uh, one particular scene where he is uh, he's climbing a tree to see where the killer possibly was watching from. Oh, I love and, that scene. Oh, yeah. And the and the uh, there's like a very subtle uh, synth, but in the background, there's like this. Uh, om- it's not a choir because it is just one guy, but he has like a very choir voice. <laughs> yeah, and it's almost just doing this ominous like, like in the background. <laughs> yeah, and so it gives this sense of. Um, for me, it was like he feels that something has happened here. You know well, yeah, I mean? and, and like it's, he's it's, got that sense going right, right because because exactly. this, this is when he's again he's activating that part of his mind that can infiltrate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he can get into the mind of a killer and I love when a lot of people kind of found it corny at the time but I love the yeah. bit where where he actually talks in the voice of the character because I actually found it kind of scary oh I loved that yeah uh, that because because when when he gets into the mind and he talks out loud as the character and that happens in that scene there where he's the camera's kind of like while that synth is going the camera's kind of like spinning around him as he's yeah. he's, he's, he's looking at the space and he's imagining what the killer would have been stalking this home because he's he's looking from the outside of the home of the the family that he eventually invaded. Um, um, what I like that he has to do too is while he is, uh, you know, saying the things that he thought the killer might be saying, might be thinking. At the same time, he's also fighting those thoughts by going like, "What did you do, you sick son of a bitch?" Yeah, like well, that. yeah. So yeah. He, it's like he still needs to find a way to fight off all these demons that are entering in himself to, to, so he can. Yeah. Well, this is, this is, this is the most important contradiction of the movie itself because he has such a psychological connection, uh, with the killer. Uh, and, and, but he's also recognizing that he's activating this part of himself Mm. to catch the killer is the idea. But then it, it, things kind of get, you know, like, like confused. And that's where the filmmaking comes in because the filmmaking eventually gets kind of romantic, um, and, and, uh, very sensitive and very intimate psychologically with both will and both with dollar hide. Um, and it kind of addresses this idea of, he kind of finds this empathy, like a bit of a curse. Um, and, and he ends up being very saddened and sympathetic towards what is a brutal serial murderer and at right. one point he gets called out on it by Jack Crawford um uh him, himself um because he says uh what he's doing is he's he's changing these people he's put taking those glass shards talk about again reflections and watching he puts the glass shards in their eye sockets so that while he's defiling the corpse he sees himself yeah that's what he does and he and will describes that as changing them which is what dollar hide thinks like because he's like i am transforming i am becoming this transcendent right, idea he even says to uh i think the the journalist when he when he kidnaps yeah, him, he's like, you owe me everything like it's like like he's doing him a favor by yes. by showing him the answers to whatever it is he yes feels it and is. and but but jack crawford the guy who brought will in 
Lin is is kind of offended by the word changes. You were like, he's like changes, and he's like, it's it's a word. I meant killing and arranging, obviously. Yeah. Um. But uh, because because he talks about how he thinks but that Jack just isn't used to that, right? Like he wouldn't he would well, just well think, because because why would anyone think that way? You're like right, this is exactly. a guy who straight up murdered families and the normal had, reaction is just he's scum. Fuck this guy. <laughs> yes. Uh, Whereas Will has to. I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like. I guess it's just Jack's lack of understanding of that this is what Will has to do. And it is dangerous. Maybe that's where that fear comes from. Yes. Well, and, and he specifically talks about the idea that Dollar Hyde seems to have come from an abusive background where he didn't right. have any kind of uh, family connection or family love. And that's why he's trying to recreate. But with these arrangements. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said he says at one point in the movie, he's like, my heart bleeds for him as a child. Someone took a kid and manufactured a monster out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was like, as an adult, obviously, he's irredeemable and someone should blow his fucking head off <laughs> yeah. um and then he goes does that contradiction discomfort you and that is for me like the thesis of this movie this is a movie yeah. that is intentionally trying to make you uncomfortable um and you know sympathize um and get Even into the, the will graham headspace yeah. yeah and i think that There's the movie directly a- tackles that contradiction itself in its character uh, especially with how psychologically involved it gets you with will's character because yeah. i'm gonna dork out a little bit here but like the, the 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 camera work uh itself which in typical man fashion is very is is similar to that kind of like um it's a lot of research realism once again because yeah. obviously he uh he went he literally spoke to uh, criminal profilers in the FBI and he literally, uh, you know, went and spent years like studying with people, people who he described as the real Will Grahams of the world. Oh, cool. um, and uh, he he even had conversations with serial killers who were imprisoned. Oh. Uh, he had Tom Noonan, who plays Francis Dollarhide. He had him uh, have uh, meetings with actual serial killers. Uh, so like he has that, that well, sense of- Well, he learned of, a lot. Uh, he did a great job. Yeah, he has that <laughs> sense of research realism to the film which by the way it seems a little dated now because every tv show ever does this shit but literally this was the first which is what csi eventually came from this whole idea of like criminal investigating and people getting really dramatically involved in like the supposed science and all of this that came from this movie oh that's awesome uh, because he did all of that research behind the scenes um with these uh uh institutions um but he merges that with a very dreamy psychologically involved analog visual style he still has that like especially when he's uh like before all this shit goes down and he's on the beach still with those like that that baby blue too while he's just in white in bed with his wife that it's like a a feeling of total content yeah we got we got it we got to shout out dante spinotti um here who who shot the film and um i I mean he's one of the most accomplished and again another one of the most accomplished and of course a couple of those shots reminded me of like miami vice and uh and heat in certain regards yeah with the beach and well yeah i'm looking over the window and it's so dramatic yeah i mean dante spinotti literally (laughs) shot heat uh right and and went on to shoot the insider most of a lot of michael mann stuff yeah um before pre pre digital i think my right. advice because miami and vice is digital right yes um but 
uh, yeah, the, the, the color scheme for this where there's like the romantic blues of his home life right. with his wife. And then when we get to dollar height, it's a lot of like these really uneasy, like green and magenta colors. Mm. Um, and then when it, when it's not colored, it's usually like the location work. Yeah, and it's very um, gray because it's almost like they're doing, you know, it's just lab work. Like yeah, it, the, the, or, the, it's, or it's usually what it is. It's like a white room with red everywhere because it's a murder scene. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and what's awesome is that he chooses this very widescreen screen photography a little different than to live and die in LA which is a little bit more of that kind of um like 16:9 ratio this yeah. is like full like scope widescreen okay. um and he has a lot of like negative space so there's yeah. a lot of like you see one like half or one third of the screen is actually like the character. And then there's so much extra space left yeah. in the frame. I'm thinking and of like when he initially walks into the room and it's just him in the middle of it with his little like tape recorder, like yes. from the sides there, or even when he, when he walks in and you see the entirety of the room itself. Yeah. Well, and, and a, a big one that I'll point out and I'll talk about, this is what I mean when it talks about how it gets psychologically involved in the film, just through the vocabulary of the cinematography. Yeah, yeah. One of them is him sitting there uh, in his hotel room watching the tapes. A lot of this is him watching those home videos right. um, of the families, which are, it, it's really creepy because you're watching these, like all these families have great times, hang out with the dog, you know eat, eat, dead. Eat, and you know that they have been brutally murdered and yeah. you've seen the photographs and you've seen the locations of where they've been murdered. Um, but taking up two thirds of the frame is the back of the television. Like mm -hmm. I've never seen anyone frame a shot like that where like you have just the, the cause we're not seeing the videos. We're seeing his face reacting to the videos. Right. And then what you'll see is him stand up and the camera kind of moves up a little bit and goes with him, follows him over to the bed and he gets on the phone and he calls his wife and he's just like, just wanted to like hear your voice or whatever. And just like, gotta, I really gotta like commit to the work. And then they say they love each other she hangs up and goes back to bed and she's obviously still in that deep blue that's supposed to remind yeah. him of that. Um, and as he goes back again, the TV gets his full attention. It takes up like two thirds of the frame and that's when he's like, okay, I'm in it. Like I'm committing to this. This is getting all of my attention. Right. And, uh, that's when he starts being like calling out and start talking like him. Like he wanted to talk to his wife one more time before he started to talk like the killer. Just, yeah. Just in <laughs> case he did a very awkward phone call. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even, even in the beach meeting, there's so much weird negative space when they're on like that log on the beach. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a, a sequence where he's looking at those family photographs and then he, uh, the camera like looks over at uh, Jack Crawford's face, who's looking at him, looking at the photographs, and you can just see his family in the very background walking towards them. And then they look up and they go, "I'm looking at photos of brutally murdered families. Uh, maybe we should not do this here, <laughs> like on my nice relaxing vacation beach home." <laughs> um, and again, just to like really get you in the zone and feel like this, feel like this character is really, really impressive. Um, an another really awesome one is when he's on the plane oh, uh, yeah. and he's looking at all the case files on the plane. And at a, at a certain point he falls asleep and he has these very dreamy visions of him and his wife on the boat. And he's, you know, he's, he's, he's yearning the, I forget which one of the pop songs plays, but it's like this romantic yearning pop song. Yeah. Uh, but it's immediately cut off and interrupted by a shot 
of the brutal uh, crime scene photographs of all of the people murdered and the little girl sitting on the plane beside him because he must have fallen asleep and they fell out. Yeah. And the girl screaming her head off <laughs> yeah. um, because she's obviously just seen something ho- horrifying. Um, and, and, and again, the way that it just walks that line of like this kind of like dreamy romantic yearning and then this brutal yeah. real because horror. Then it's like it's like his thoughts are mixing his his thoughts of his own family with this murdered family and he's yeah. starting to make those connections and it, it's a very discomforting thing i'm sure yeah so. yeah and 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 you you feel that just in the film itself again one thing with michael mann that i mean people have heard me drone on about it on and on forever but <laughs> the thing about michael mann movies is that despite the fact that they are so grounded in like this very sort of like researched realistic writing uh supposedly yeah. uh it's it's the style i find that his movies just really make you feel yes um, I, I every time i They're watch one of his movies emotional. and and most of the story is how you feel in relation to what you're watching. Yeah. Um, and, and they're always super sensitive. Like even the manliest of men seem to yeah. have the scene where they, they got to break down that character. And then we'll talk about that scene maybe where um, Will Graham, who obviously feels horrible that he's bringing these horrifying things home with him and he's maybe possibly endangering his family. Eventually we yeah. reveal that all these anxieties he has about his family are just that, that he thinks that, you know, he's, he's, he's becoming, he talks at one point how he had to go into a psychiatric ward because uh, he spent so long trying to capture Hannibal and he eventually did right. capture Hannibal that he felt like he never got rid of Hannibal. The Hannibal just became part of him and he couldn't get rid of him. And he has to tell this to his son in the middle of the cereal aisle at the grocery store <laughs> yeah, because he, like, because he's like, you know, son, a lot of people are going to say some weird shit about me and that like I'm a fucking creep or whatever, but I love you. I'm just uh, – yeah the thing I do has consequences and there are really, there's really evil shit in the world that I maybe yeah. can't protect you from. He's landed on <laughs> thick with this, with his kid here. Yeah. So, uh, I, again, this is just, it's a really sensitive movie about really, really horrifying subject matter that really gets you dreamily involved, um, in, in this. And it's, you know, it has a very sumptuous, uh, color style to it. It's very, yeah. um, melancholy and, and, and moody in, in its own way, especially in terms of like the actual lighting and eventually the, again, choices of architecture. Um, because one thing that we should talk about is when he goes and visits Hannibal and he oh, goes, yeah. he goes to the prison played by Brian Cox, who he's you know, so good. He's awesome. Holy yeah. shit, dude. Like I, like I love Silence of the Lambs, and you know, Hopkins, right? as yeah. we all do. But it, you know, so I had that kind Brian, of like Brian what, Cox almost bring? plays him smaller. Yes, uh, and, and, and it's it. creepy. I loved it. That um, my brother was actually saying that he was like Anthony Hopkins was kind of more like a like a horror lector. He was whereas this it up guy a little, was yeah. straight up just psychological, like just psychologically trying to fuck with you. There, there was no. You could tell that there was horrific things within him. Yeah, but what he was expressing was more like. I could fuck with you at any point. You know what I mean? I'm just smarter. I'm I'm uh, I'm wiser than all of you. I I I know the ins and outs. Yeah. I mean, we have that great scene with him in the phone where he oh, where yeah. he where he what a great plays scene. like three different characters on the phone to lie his ass. Yeah. Off. Well, I mean, it's I, fantastic. I love that stuff. I love when Michael Mann goes like full process filmmaking on us, which is like watching yeah. someone do like watching a smart person be good at what they do. Yes. Um, yes. Absolutely. And and yeah, that that's exactly what happens when he gets that phone that they can't dial anything, and he like pulls it open and dials the yeah. operator just so that he can and like it's this like brilliant one take of brian 
Brian Co- uh, what's what's his name again? Brian, Brian Cox. Brian Cox. Yeah, he's and, incredible. And he manipulates uh, two different people over the phone yeah. to find his way to getting Will Graham's address so he can give it to Francis Dollarhide, the the, <laughs> the serial killer that he's currently hunting down. Yeah, and and I love Cox's performance of it. It's just so he plays it so smoothly compared to Hopkins. Hopkins yeah. just. And I love Hopkins, but he he really does ham it up a little bit, and I never really realized it until I saw Cox go for it. Here. Yeah, well, he he just goes like full like devilishness, whereas yeah, like this yeah. is this is more of like a I'm a working professional who <laughs> yeah. who is just absolutely fucking insane. Insane. Yeah. And, and I love that he even calls him out on that. He was just like, I don't think I'm smarter than you. You just you had disadvantages, and he's like, what disadvantages? You're fucking insane. insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, the the little bit where he goes to Hannibal though, and he goes into this this prison cell again. Uh, the way that he shoots this um, is very very. These two guys are like head on, like center frame, and the bars apparently. Anyway, I I read read about this later. I didn't realize it, but maybe that's because it's such a good effect. I didn't realize it. I'm gonna have to go back and watch it now. Apparently, they tried really really hard to make sure that as they cut between the two characters, it looked like the bars didn't move. Oh, really? So it looked like they were almost sitting in the same spot as one another, like one in the same kind of deal. Oh, that's cool. Um, and But it's a pure white room, which looks kind of creepy, and it's yeah. white bars. And when he runs out of it, like it's this really like modernist-looking building, and yeah. that's the insane asylum. And apparently it's actually the Atlanta Museum of Modern Art or something. Oh, really? <laughs> and, but, but he wanted that kind of like alien uneasy feeling because he, yeah. liked, he liked the location. And he was just like, can we just like shoot that and then shoot a cell and put them together? And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we got there. Um, and yeah, I mean, and the, the camera as he's like running down those, those, uh, ramps and stuff like that and running outside, like nearly having a panic attack and he's, his vision's all blurry and yeah. like he's freaking out. It's like out. all coming back to him. Yeah. Well, because he went in there supposedly to get the scent back. Yeah. was his idea and and I love and that line it seemed like it has. ended up being a little like he almost wanted to have a conversation with Lecter a little bit well yeah and that was what Lecter says to him yeah. is like he's like you're not here for my expertise you're here because you want that sent back uh, of like you know of talking and thinking like a killer yeah. um, and he's and what Lecter says to him is uh, you should have just smelled yourself or whatever basically <laughs> yeah. and he's panicking freaking out because he he knows it's kind of true yeah. that to like you're get, already there man you didn't need me <laughs> yeah, like like to get into to understand these people's urges, he almost has to feel them himself, and yep. then the movie by extension feels them, uh, and that is ultimately kind of what I find uneasy about this film as it transitions into its second ha- second half, because a lot of it is it's you know the minutia of forensic case details and how they're you know doing this, and then you know the psychological um, effects that it's taking on Will Graham, but halfway through the movie it switches to being a movie about Francis Dollarhide. Yeah. Um, the, it the, really focuses on him. Yeah. Around because the time, around the time that he almost, kidnaps Freddie Lowndes is where it turns into a movie right. about and him. And I think they almost want to get you in that mindset because Will is. And so they're like, let's, let's have you, the audience get to know this guy, you know, like not only just on this, he's an evil dude, but you know, we're going to let you see him try to, uh, woo, a, a girl. And, and, you know, we're going to see him have sex with that girl. We're going to see him, be emotional with that girl you know it's not just gonna be he's a straight up evil piece of shit doing terrible things which we all know he is it's just interesting that man decides to to actually film those things those moments you know his yeah, more well, human well, moments well because that's just it is we spend an hour knowing 
in brutal detail what he's done and what he's capable of and what he's doing. And then when we finally see him again, the first time we see him, it's like a compute, a completely like inhuman sequence where he's even covering his face with like one of those, uh, I forget what that's called. Uh, the thing that like they wrap around their legs. I forget what that's called for some reason. Oh, pantyhose. Yeah. The pantyhose thing. Yeah. He's got that wrapped around his face, uh, but only half of his face. But only half of it. So it, so it kind of distorts him and makes him look kind of like mutilated. Yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah, you see him in like these really creepy Dutch angles and this bizarre lighting in yeah. this in this room that had uh, in his in his home, which has mixed match furniture and like uh, bizarre artwork of like the cosmos, but also like the lunar surface. Yeah, and 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 he he's kind of going off on on uh, Freddie Freddie Lowndes, who uh, I mean to be fair, called him like a uh, homosexual freak in the paper or whatever, yeah. uh, because that's what uh, uh, Will Graham told them to write, so they could kind of like maybe bait him. Right. Uh, speaking of which, we didn't get to talk about that moment where they think that they've baited him, and it's this beautiful silhouette of him in like that old school uh concrete architecture uh and then they have that guy who kind of like they they catch the wrong guy and there's that close-up yeah Yeah. there's the close-up of will graham's like barrel of the gun going straight into the middle of the frame and stuff like that yeah because he's so jacked on like the we've got him and then they don't instead he kidnapped freddie Lowndes, the reporter he didn't go after will graham he went after the reporter because they didn't expect that exactly (laughs) Um, and they it's like it's like they didn't make they made the mistake of because the reason he could recognize him was because they took the picture together and you're like I mean, I get that you had a setup and a plan, but you really did put this journalist in harm's way yeah. <laughs> in order to do so. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and the line that he gets when he's talking to the reporter is he's like, your job is to report. That's why you're here. It's like, yeah. if you don't open your eyes, I will staple them to your forehead. And you're just <laughs> yeah. like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, this guy, is, he starts off strong. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and he also gets that great moment where he, he repeats, like, do you see? Do you see? And he's showing yeah. him the original photographs and then Mrs. Leeds changed and then he's showing here's a photo of you (laughs) here and then we're talking you know he's going to be changed and we we get invited into in a really creepy manner his idea of you know of 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 watching and and voyeurism and how he's transforming people yeah um and he even has that great line too where he's like uh it is in your nature to do one thing correctly tremble (laughs) And he's like, you oh, owe me man. fear. You owe me awe. <laughs> like he's, yeah. you know, he's, he's, he's wild and out basically. Yeah. I mean, he views himself as a God basically, or something that's uh, becoming one maybe is more an accurate statement. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, eventually they talk about once someone has that, that uh, they feel that power and right. that control, all of a sudden they feel in- incredibly powerful. Uh, and then we get that haunting image of him setting Fred- Freddie Lowndes on fire in the wheelchair down the ramp. Oh yeah, that goes straight into the into camera. The camera. Oh, yeah, that was God. such a good added detail. Yeah, just just un- unbelievable. Because I've seen that 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 clip before. Because yeah. you know the Red Dragon yeah. uh, remake or yeah. whatever. But it just it doesn't it doesn't hold a candle to the way that man does it. And man's is I think even quicker too. It's not yeah. it's not they don't hold it or anything. No. It's just dude on fire, wheelchair thrown into the camera right into your face. Well, yeah, and it's all one shot too. Exactly. You know? So it's yeah. not like a general coverage. It's just the flaming thing just absorbs the camera basically. Yeah. And it and it seems like it directly hits it and almost like debris hits the camera. <laughs> yeah, it almost. does. Yeah. Um, and it's fascinating to me that though we've spent an hour setting up that he uh murders entire families and he defiles corpses and he mutilates corpses 
Um, and then we're introduced to him doing this, which is so moody and terrifying. And yeah. then we're introduced to him just at the workplace, just developing film, yeah. developing photos. Uh, and he has a, he has an interest in a cute blind girl. Yeah. One of his coworkers. And it's, it's honestly very, probably a relatable scene for people where yeah. he's just, you I know, also found it very interesting the way that they had him, the way that he had, they had him socialize. Like mm-hmm. he was almost figuring out how to socialize with people. Like mm-hmm. the first thing is like, I'll give you a ride. And then she's like, no, it's okay. I'll take the bus. I got it. He's like, but, but I'll give you a ride. And then she's like, no, you know, I got a ride. It's okay. And, he, and he's like, I'll give you a ride because I want to give you a ride. And she's like, okay, if you want to give me a ride. So it's like, I found that yeah. interesting that he's almost figuring out how to ask people things and how to talk to people or, or well, maybe get what he wants. I'm not sure. Well, no, it, it seems complicated it, to be it, honest. It, it's very clear that he's not very good at communicating right. and that he has chosen one of the most destructive ways to communicate what he feels whereas right. if he just found someone who he could talk to maybe maybe he could work through that that yeah. pain and that and that suffering that he's you know felt which at it some seems point. he kind of gets with this uh with he this does girl. briefly there's a, yeah there's, there's even a scene where he like he like when she's sleeping next to him and it feels he's like content he, he's content and then he i think he even cries and for me that moment was like a a thing where i think he almost saw a bit of the evil in himself and realized that it's just it's not going to work. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's looking at this girl who I think he's honestly making a connection with. And I think deep down he's, he knows that he's a killer. You know, I don't think that that's happening. It's not right in the forefront of the screen, Yeah. but just me thinking about his psychological, uh, you know, thoughts would, would that's where it leads me. Well, yeah. Well, cause it, it, it seems like anyway, that this, this fantasy of being sort of like accepted and loved, uh, right. and, and, and this desire to kind of like see it and have another person see you is like really important to him. And he's found his own outlet for it yeah. and he's gotten used to that. And then all of a sudden he sees like the normal people, the normal way yeah, that people like, oh. get those. And he's like, <laughs> shit, he's maybe like, I should have waited. He's like, this feels really good actually. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. it also coincides with him presumably probably having sex for the first time. So well, yeah, that yeah. probably felt really that pro- good too. Yeah, that probably helped. Uh, but one amazing perverse scene that happens in there that is like I almost felt like in another world it's almost like a scene out of a De Palma movie except for the fact that Michael Mann again is very genuinely romantic about it Mm -hmm. but it also is just a really gross scene is when he invites her into his house and he is watching the films of the family he's about to murder next with her sitting next to him and she's blind so she can't see it it's like what are you watching and he's like I'm doing homework and he's watching and, and he's seeing his fantasy up on the screen of he wants to murder and rape and, you know, put shards of glass in that woman's yeah. eyes so that, you know, he feels loved. And then he looks next to her and he's looking at her body and he's being like, maybe I could get that here. And he's kind of like, he, yeah, like the, he's the, having this very complicated, like, like the fantasy and reality are kind of merging together for him in a way that's really complicated and obviously very fucking disgusting at the yeah, same time, yeah. like very perverted. Um, and, and again, the fact that he works with film also uh, is another just a commentary on, you know, it's it's implicating again the audience, people who have a desire to see. I felt I felt yeah. very attacked about uh, <laughs> the fact that I like to watch gross things. <laughs> yeah, damn you, uh, man. Yeah, fuck damn you, dude. Michael. <laughs> we like your movies, okay? Um, but it, it's that very Hitchcockian idea of of implicating the viewer and the audience as watchers and characters 
because both Dollarhide is a watcher, and then obviously Will Graham is uh, him, himself, mm-hmm. and then obviously he's also getting psychologically involved in that guy's headspace too. So it's yeah. just it gets really really complicated as all of all of this uh, continues on. And again, the filmmaking is, switches between being kind of like ominous and mysterious and scary and horrifying, uh, and between genuine romantic yearning and yeah. intimacy with its with its characters and and a little bit of hope but not hope without the fact that there's some really evil shit in the world <laughs> yeah yeah i do have to it's say michael there. mann makes the most romantic dark films <laughs> you know what i mean like he just never doesn't have a sense of romance in his films regardless of the 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 content that he's bringing no well and, and and even there's uh there's also a, a sense of like excitement yeah and, like passion and um, I, I, I love the bits that again, people kind of found corny at the time was when, uh, he, uh, Will Graham starts to figure shit out and he has to talk out loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I love the bit where he's watching the films, um, and he realizes that he's been watching the same films that Dollar has been watching the entire time. Yeah. Uh, and he has this great bit where again, talking about thesis of the film, we talked about that other one that was the thesis of the film, but he has this one here where he's just like, everything with you is seeing, isn't it? Your primary sensory intake that makes your dream live is seeing reflections mirrors images you've seen these films my man yeah. haven't you or whatever yeah he's like you son of a bitch <laughs> he's I like fucking got you fighting with himself <laughs> it's so great <coughs> and, and i think this will this will lead just because this is probably my favorite shot in the whole fucking movie oh yeah is the the scene where it's the rain over the window oh my god and he's yeah. just like i'm coming for you son of a bitch <laughs> like it's just it's so fucking 80s well yeah action. Well, and, well, and, and, well and also oh, also because so that shot it's and got, it has a rising crescendo synth part oh, that's yeah, beautiful. so beautiful oh my god yeah it's incredible um, best best i think it might be the best shot of the 80s yeah <laughs> it's like it's just so romantic well, yeah. you've got william peterson just brooding to the camera he's you have a window in between him so you have these like reflections of light well, and yeah. then you have the rain coming down and it's just like yeah i'm coming to get you you, you have you have the it's green so you, you have the greens and reds from the street lights yeah and but then you also have his own reflection right so it's almost like he, it looks like he's saying it to himself to himself too you're right yeah, yeah it's so good because he's like it's, it's, it's just you and me now sport <laughs> is what he says <laughs> yeah that's the one <laughs> Oh man, easily my favorite five seconds of the whole movie right there. <laughs> yeah. So again, though, um, uh, what I, what we mean when we kind of talk about when it's implicating the audience is that you are very sympathetic to this guy who wants to be, just feel love. He wants to feel desire. He, he has fantasies of like just someone looking at him and like being happy and yeah. smiling and, and like wanting him. Um, right. And you, you, it's obviously a very universal feeling. It's something that you can look at and the way that he depicts it, it's just like you completely understand it. I mean, that scene where he takes her, uh, on a, what is a, a a really genuinely romantic date takes the blind lady to go and feel the tranquilized tiger, which is a beautiful scene in the book in this and in the Hannibal TV show where they do the same scene. Um, they, they even extend it by having the orange tiger glow in the Hannibal TV show, which I thought was a nice touch. That was very cool. Um, but yeah, watching her feel it and just like feel something primal and feel alive. And like she was having an experience that she's never had before. And you can see she's happy and he's happy to be giving it to her. It's a, it's a generous moment where he's just doing something kind to a person because he likes them. Exactly. And, and you feel that, 
And then at the same time, though, the movie doesn't let you forget that this he's guy, also this guy that. Yeah. And it, he, he also thinks he's a he, god. He could he's just as easily people. rape her, murder her and disfigure her at uh, any moment, at any moment. Yeah. Um, and and, that, and that's a really complicated fucking feeling like oh, watching yeah. that. It, it's uneasy, but also it's nice and sad and horrifying all at the same time. And you're yeah. like, what the fuck? And unfortunately, it does kind of lead to that. It gets there in the finale, which because, we should. And what I here. love. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to the. The finale here. The uh, what I love is that they they have when he's looking at them when he's looking at the the gr- the blind girl that's on the date with the other guy. Yeah. And and it sh- it shows them shows the same shot and it's just them normal and then it shows him like looking and then they go back and they're and, and you can see the light coming out of her. Oh yeah. From his perspective and uh, it's just, just yeah. it's 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 both it's almost beautiful in a way, but also yeah. just, you know what it implies. Yes. So you know that horror is about to uh, take place. Well, yeah, because she, he, he sees one of his other coworkers drive her home at one point. And right, that's what it is. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, the guy is interested in her, but it doesn't seem like she's that interested in him, but yeah. he doesn't gather that because he's not that socially. Yeah. Uh, we'll say aware or and at competent. this point he's obviously just uh, assuming the worst of every human being so yeah so he murders that guy in the shrub and then he takes her and he brings her back to his home where he uh, plans to murder her and there's this amazing shot where he takes a broken shard of glass and he's gonna slit her throat with it and then he sees his own face reflection in the glass yeah. and he has like a moment of doubt there where he sees himself and he sees that he is the horrible villain of this situation. And he's like, I really like this person. And I can't believe that if she could see me, that's what she would see. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, uh, uh, Will Graham is outside, uh, the house scoping it out. Um, being, he's like, he's got someone in there and, and they told him, they were like, dude, the SWAT team's going to be there. I love it. Jack's like, dude, you don't need your gun. The SWAT team's going in and Will's just like not even listening. He's He's so obsessed at this point. He's so, he's so in the zone with this guy that it it almost feels. Because he needs to do it personally. Yes. He doesn't, this is about, this is about him defeating his own inner demons. Yes. It's important that he personally eradicate this thing from existence so that he also eradicates it from himself because he's let it in. That's what's happened is every time is he lets these people into him and last time he let Hannibal in, it didn't go well. So now he's like, I'm not letting that happen again. I am going to personally get rid of dollar hide. Yeah. Um, and the, the slow-mo shot of him like breaking through it's the so reflected good. glass. And it's got like an in 80s rock kind of thing. Yeah, well, yeah. it's Inagata DeVita, right, Iron exactly. Butterfly, which yep. by the way, a lot of people criticized at the time because it was kind of like a, like it was a big song. Like it was like, a, it's almost yeah. like a, like a I loved song. the cover. I thought it was great. Honestly, um, but uh, the the contra- the contradiction that you get in that sequence to me is that you get what feels like a like a propulsive rock song, like a heroic moment yeah. of him breaking through the glass. But it's completely undermined by the actual series of events, which is not at all very heroic or uh, or like uh, traditionally like he didn't get the upper hand immediately. He's immediately yeah. actually shut down, sliced and scarred across his face. Yeah. As um, soon as he gets into the, the window, the guy just grabs he gets, him and throws and, him at and the And Will fridge. Graham gets multiple <laughs> cops killed doing it in the process. Yeah. And this scene fascinatingly is shot with seven different frame rates. Oh, really? Um, yeah, they, they talked about that they really wanted That's to make cool. this disorienting and feel strange and not like a typical action scene. They it wanted definitely to f- did that. Yeah, well, and, and they, they use bizarre angles. They use repetitive shots and multiple frame rates. So the speeds of everything is different. Yeah. And they cut between them so rapidly with this like fractured, like staccato editing that you it's so 
like the pro the process of events is not very complicated, but like the actual fractured editing makes it feel so disorienting and so yeah. strange and like yep. inhuman what you're watching while he's like shotgunning police officers down and then he eventually tries to come back and kill will and will just like brutally yeah, guns him down him. and i love the uh the placement of the body where it looks like he's like this fallen angel or something like well, that like his, his arms are outspread and the blood the, uh, the blood is going like around wings him. or yeah, something it, like it, that. well it looks like the dragon wings the right. red dragon because right. it's, it's his pool of blood is created like those dragon wings and stuff like that um and yeah it's a beautiful uh, shot and horrifying at the same time yeah. once again. Um, and yeah, that, that ending is like really, really fascinating because it completely undermines it as a, uh, heroic act where if mm -hmm. anything, it was just really, really brutal and really strange and sad actually. Yeah. Uh, because you actually, I mean, his last moment is a moment of doubt. He might not have killed her even. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so like that, that whole sequence of events ends up being much weirder and sadder than you would expect of a cop running in, saving a life and killing a serial killer. That's not really what that scene feels like at all. No, no, um, it doesn't. It doesn't have that, you know, that just gratifying moment where you're like, we got them boys. No, if anything, it feels it's, like it's just, it, just more shit is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, and, and even, only gonna continue. And, and even when he goes back to his family and he feels like he's kind of like, like it's over, I have a limit that demon yeah. and maybe hopefully I can go back to my life and the wife even asked him like how many of them made it and he was like most yeah. he's like I hope yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we really don't know how many he's killed before so it's hard to you know so uh, technically he prevented the next family that would have been right. killed and he prevented that so he did it the best that he could really Yeah. but he, he still uh, acknowledged that even that guy's death was sad. So, right. uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, complicated experience watching this movie, which is not typically, I feel like what you get from even, you know, taking on a brutal serial killer, even when you get a really good serial killer movie, something like, uh, I don't know, like seven. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's more grimy and, um, like, cartoonishly monstrous almost in a way. Yeah, that's true. You, know, you don't usually, I feel like I don't usually get this like raw emotional connection to the characters yeah, that you get in this. It's just a very human film. It's, it's, yes. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't do as much of this kind of like transcendent overall feeling thing. More like, like with uh, LA, uh, To Live and Die in LA does. Like this one seems to be all the transcendence is happening very interpersonally with every character. Yeah. Rather than the whole film is giving you that transcendent feeling it's almost happening just within the characters themselves. yeah like like if we compare these endings live and die in la ends on like a a moment of like completely icky cynicism yeah yeah like <laughs> whereas no happiness at all where, whereas this technically he's he was successful but the movie yeah. still feels kind of like you know raw and sad about it right um so there was still a lot of human life taken for this yeah well and that dollar hyde himself was a human who was turned yeah. into you know you know right. it, it even recognizes his own humanity um so yeah i think we'll have to angle towards the reductive rating around on this one but it might it's probably clear this is a five for me it's been a five nice. I, it wasn't a five i think the first time i watched it yeah um but this movie has only grown with me every time i watch it and every time i that's where i think i'm gonna be. yeah, yeah. I, I every time i just sit down and experience this i just i feel it all over again i feel 
all of the bodily and psychic pain of, mm. of this film. And I, I think that it's like actually has something interesting to say about empathy and connection and the link again between sort of cops and criminals, but in a way that is very human and very melancholy and um, also tracks the very human compulsion and a compulsion that obviously you and me also have a compulsion and desire to look to watch. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at the same time, it documents this like romantic yearning and obsessiveness and all of the consequences, violent consequences of this kind of stuff. So I think that this is a really complex movie on like three different layers to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, both on its just literal character writing, um, on the filmmaking that gets you psychologically and complicated and uh, complicatedly involved with them. Um, and then the audience participation element where you have two characters who, uh, you know, Will Graham, who is a, a professional looker into the abyss, basically. Yeah. And he feels like it eats a part of himself to do it. Um, and then a movie that not only depicts that, but also depicts the humanity of the abyss. Yeah. <laughs> like you get complicated, you get really complex feelings out of that. And right. I, I feel like this is one of the, if not the best crime film of the eighties, it's, it's one of them. And the fact that this became so influential, I think was good, despite the fact that everybody kind of went more with the process element of this as they were like, it's really cool to see the uh, individual science and, and process element behind this that we really like and took less like the ethereal, dreamy, moody quality and psychological realism of this. Yeah. Um, and then combine that with man's typical beautiful wide frames with awesome use of negative space, idiosyncratic architecture, beautiful cinematography, cross the board, bam. Yeah. I, feel I like think it. that's it. I didn't get the word illusion in there and reflection and refraction, <laughs> but, but they should be in there as just well. Just throw them in now. There, yeah, there. there. They got in there. Added them into the review. <laughs> there. They got in there as well. And then again, we didn't even get to talk a whole lot about it, but and we got to wrap up, but the, the, the spacey synths, the humming, oh, the God. wailing, the and then, and then uh, uh, the actual romantic pop songs that he used, like heartbeat. Yeah, I uh, love, dude, the, the ending where it's just like, freeze frame you got your kid throwing a rock at the ocean yeah. you got your family holding each other just nice and wholesome and then you have a great old 80s theme song just just bumping in the in the credits i, yep. I fucking loved that, that yeah love that lo love heartbeat love strong as i am or yeah. like strong as i am <laughs> so good good shit oh man love and it. then the uh the cover i see i always call it garden of eden just because it's the only lyric i know of the <laughs> song what's the actual song called again inagata davida inagata davida that cover is unreal i thought it was so fucking good to mix that really distorted electric guitar especially with what's going on i mean you know th this this psychologically crazy killer is is doing all his insanity and meanwhile you have in the garden of eden honey <laughs> you know it's just there's this contrast. That yeah, I was trying to find out. Is because uh, Iron Butterfly. This is the original. It's not a cover, is it? Oh, I thought. I'm thinking of. I'm thinking the. Uh, maybe I'm thinking that the original was an organ version that I've heard. I think that is that version. It's, oh, it's a seventeen. It's like a thirty-minute track. I'm yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I need to re-listen to it. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. No, it's an it's an it's an eighteen-minute <laughs> track. But no, this is the '60s Iron Butterfly version of the song, which is the oh, original okay. version of the song. Oh, okay. I believe, so. Well, I, I stand corrected. Which then. which I didn't mention. I didn't know that it was a, such a progressive song. That's amazing to me. Yeah, I, I'll have to re-listen to it. 
Um, which, by the way, I didn't get to mention, the reason he also chose the song beyond the fact of that contradiction of like traditional heroic action scene versus the reality of what he actually filmed that scene to be, mm-hmm. um, not only that, um, apparently the serial killer that he talked to and that he based a lot of uh, his dollar hide material on was a serial killer who spoke about his obsessiveness over a woman he never met. Basically, oh, wow. he, he saw a picture of a woman and he kept picturing like a life with her. And he said that in Agata de Vida was his song, their song. He called it their song, his oh song with her. So he even though she that, doesn't know, she wow. has no idea who this guy that is. That adds an entire layer to that cover now. Or God damn it. I just, <laughs> it's in my head. I'm sorry, guys. It's in my head. But that, that gives an entire new layer to that song choice then. Because yeah. that's that's absolutely inc- incredible. Wow. Um, yeah. So I'm going to give it a four. Uh to me, it was just like I think it's it's very dense, mm-hmm. and there's I just need of, another. There's yeah, a lot to take in. I just sure. need another go at it. I think because I was enthralled the entire time. I just felt a little overwhelmed at, at, at in moments mm-hmm. just because it's my first time, and I think uh, well because you have the literal plotting again. You right. have you and then know, all of these inner workings that man's and then, and doing. Then, then you have the, the filmmaking, filmmaking and the itself, camera. Right. Yeah, and it's so just, it's just there's a lot to take in. And while I'm taking notes, you know, I'm trying to go back and forth and all yeah. that. And I feel like this is a movie I really want to go back and uh, focus on. Um, but that being said, Michael Mann's use of you know once again his romanticism with with eighties rock with thriller ballads. Gotta and, love them. yeah with the thriller and then and then the eighties rock ballads <laughs> with the synths and I love his his uh, music choice in every film that I've seen from him. Uh, and uh, once again, William Peterson, man, this was a real introduction for me. For, yeah, and both I'm of his very major disappointed films. now to hear that this was essentially his like height. Yeah, that sucks because back this back. guy could have been a huge, yeah. How, huge did, he, how movie did he not star. become? A I don't star know. Like that's crazy. I, I have no idea how he didn't. Because this is this is because Will Graham is such a rich, complex character to get and yeah. then also to get man who is so psychologically involved with him like he gives him so much space to do some yeah, amazingly complex it, acting didn't you say that the role was originally going to go to like gibson or something it was like mel yeah gibson? it was mel gibson richard gear or someone else like there the, the were those so were the, for the, him the, to like beat no, out that and then do no, this those kind were of people who were fighting for the role because right. it's such a complex role and then yeah he saw uh, an early copy of to live and die in la funny enough and then decided he wanted to use him from there so, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, but, yeah, I'm going to give it a four out of five, but I could see this becoming the five. Also, just wanted to say, Brian Cox, holy shit, you were a good Hannibal Lecter. That was unbelievable. Well, yeah, and, and he, I did not think I'd see someone that could equal or top Anthony Hopkins for me, but he might be there. I mean, yeah, he's well, very short-lived, which well, yeah, I'm a little say, disappointed he does, by because he, does, he, does, he's so he good. doesn't get much material, and yeah. apparently Michael Mann actually specifically didn't give him much material. Or that? like yeah, Just well, so he was a very memorable he had mo- memorable moments. Well, because that- he, he kind of wanted him to be that kind of like uh, in the background presence. Okay. Um, and he didn't want, and he thought that Brian Cox was actually like so good that he didn't want him to like take over the movie. Cause yeah, he, he was like, he, the, the, he, he, he was, he was like, this is the Will <laughs> Graham and Dollar Hyde movie. And like, yeah, so. I, I, I think in that case, I will say Michael Mann made the right choice there. Cause I mean, when Brian Cox was on the screen, I was enthralled. I, he, he did such a fantastic job. Um, so yeah, I'm going to give it a four for now. Yeah. Oh, and I, what's that one line that he has too? Do you dream much, Will? <laughs> yeah. I love also, he's like, he's like, your, your cologne has a, a ship on it, like yeah. for children or something like that. Yeah, I know you live on a beach house. Your, your hands don't look like cop hands. <laughs> yeah. They look like they're, they've been working. <laughs> <They look> like, <laughs> 
Oh, man. Oh, so, good so smooth. All so right. Good. Well, that will wrap it up for this week's episode. That was To Live and Die in L.A., as well as Manhunter, uh, 1985 and 1986, respectively. I uh, hope you guys uh, liked that episode. In uh, two weeks' time, we're going to – or sorry, one week's time. What am I? I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> one week's time. Oh, and I want to thank Alex Neto, again, patron. Thanks yes. for recommending uh, that double feature. because yeah, it, ended up, it being, ended up being awesome. Yeah. Love. Really worked well together. <laughs> yes. Uh, but one week's time, we're going to be having uh, a special guest on, and we are going to be talking trauma films, uh, the biggest trauma film, The Toxic Avenger, which I've never seen. Uh, and we're going to be pairing it with Cannibal, the musical by Trey Parker and Matt Stone. I think one of uh, trauma's 90s output. Trauma, theme, trauma films are like notoriously like no budget uh, <laughs> nice. uh, uh, craziness in their own way. Uh, I'm excited to dig in for the first time because I've literally never seen a trauma film. Yeah, so and me neither, obviously. We're going to be doing that <laughs> on the free episode. Uh, but in two weeks' time for you guys, patrons, we have a very special one for you guys. Uh, I help program a movie theater here. Sometimes I mention yeah. that on the show. And it just so happens that our programming uh, retromania for uh, this coming month is The Matrix and the matrix uh reloaded oh, yeah. uh, on 35 millimeter film with uh dts digital surround sound so uh, god am i excited uh our 35 millimeter projectionist is getting those film prints ready they're gonna look amazing apparently. i can't wait to see that highway scene on the big screen on reloaded oh yep. my god they are pristine prints i mean so i already know the first one the jamie and i are gonna so. double feature those in the theaters very soon so we figured why not come back and actually talk about them on yeah. the show as well so in two weeks time you can expect a full discussion on the matrix 1999 and the sequel uh the matrix reloaded 2003 by lily and lana wachowski oh yeah uh, so yeah that should wrap it up for this week thanks so much as always for listening and keep it sleazy keep it sleazy